You're listening to the Forefront Church Sermon Podcast. Forefront Church is a progressive Christian community more interested in asking good questions than having all the right answers. Thanks for listening. Pastor Josh reached out and said, would I come and preach while uh, the pastors were away? I was like, when the cat's away, the mice will play. (laughs) Of course I'll come. Actually, St. Lydia's, where I serve as pastor, has a long connection to Forefront because we had a community coordinator named Hannah who was married to a guy named Johnny. They were from England. Johnny liked Forefront. And Hannah was working at St. Lydia's, and so they were a family at both churches. And they come back occasionally and visit, but they left in uh, 2019 so Hannah could study theology in Toronto. But they introduced the congregations and got us connected, and we've had lots of different ways uh, that the congregations have done things together, including marching in the Pride March together. So that's cool. I'm working from a passage from Jeremiah. And so I want to, I don't know how you do this here, but I want to read the passage before I start talking about it. So uh, this is a couple of different sections of the 31st chapter of Jeremiah, and is a long chapter. So I, I took out some uh, sections that would sort of give you the flavor of the chapter. At that time, says the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they will be my people. Thus says the Lord, The people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness when Israel sought rest. The Lord appeared to Israel from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness for you. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, once more they shall use these words in the land of Judah and in its towns when I restore their fortunes. The Lord bless you, O abode of righteousness. O holy hill. And Judah and all its towns shall live there together, and the farmers and those who wander with their flocks. I will satisfy the weary, and all who are faint I will replenish. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel in those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Just have to sit with that last line for a minute. So I'm a preacher who preaches from uh, text, and they made me write a text anyway because I had to submit it through the sermon portal, (laughs) but I'll try not to just read it. Uh, But last week, I took the train down to Washington, D.C. to participate in an action led by a coalition of Native American 
organizations, including the Indian Collective, NDN, uh, a Lakota-led organization from Rapid City, South Dakota. Generations of leaders were there, from elders active in the American Indian movement since all the way back in the 70s, all the way up to many young activists mobilized at Standing Rock, fighting fossil fuel corporations, trying to build pipelines through indigenous land. Many traveled together from the lands of the Oseti Sakwan, the great Sioux Nation in the Dakotas in Minnesota. The occasion was the 79th birthday of Leonard Peltier, a native activist and the longest held native political prisoner in the United States. We were all there to call upon President Biden to offer clemency after now 50 years being held in prison. Mr. Peltier himself sent a message and said, among other things, that his imprisonment cannot contain his spirit. He said, these walls cannot contain my laughter, my hope. Well, on the hit show Res Dogs, Dallas Goldtooth is hilarious playing his character spirit. You see him riding up on his horse. <laughs> Here in this action in Washington, D.C., he showed his strong activist side. He was the MC for the proceedings, and he showed real anger, real commitment to the movement. He's a fluent Dakota speaker and language instructor for young people, and he regularly throughout the action made his comments first in Dakota and then in English. He and other leaders refused to leave the fence in front of the White House at the end of the action to force arrests. They wanted to amplify their protest as of Mr. Peltier's imprisonment as another example of the long history of government disregard for Native peoples and culture. Dr. Nick Estes, an activist professor from University of Minnesota and a Lakota tribal member, offered an impassioned speech giving some historical context for his arrest. And I, I share this in case you don't know his story. Dr. Estes showed us how the FBI tried to destroy activist movements like the American Indian Movement in the 70s, just as they had with the Black Panthers in the 1960s. These protest movements challenged the white power establishment, and they were infiltrated, harassed, and their leaders were targeted, framed, arrested, and sometimes killed. Mr. Peltier was an AIM uh, leader active on the Pine Ridge Reservation, supporting and defending tribal sovereignty. And he was framed for the killing of two FBI agents in a gunfight in 1975. In drawing a wider historical context for this one man's framing and incarceration over the last 50 years, Dr. Estes gave this passionate plea. This is not an Indian problem, he said. This is everyone's problem. And we all need to do the work together for justice. As the protests unfolded with drums and singing and the requisite call and response protest chants, now I'll know who's been to a protest. What do we want? Justice. When do we want it? Now. All right, you're with me. <laughs> While we're doing this, drums playing, chants, there was this elderly indigenous woman who had a shell and sage burning in it. And she was just slowly making her way around the circle, person to person to person. She was wearing traditional dress, beaded clothing and moccasins. 
she came up to Dr. Estes, who I think is like 6'6", and he bent over to her and pulled the sage up over his face with his eyes closed and then just looked at her uh, with, I couldn't hear him, I wasn't close enough, but words of gratitude to her. And then she came around the circle and she came to me. And she offered me the shell with sage burning just the same as every other person in the circle. I think there were, out of the 100 plus people there, there were five white people, five European descended people. And I was grateful for the offer and I, I took the smoke over my head and, and prayed silently my own prayer of gratitude for being there, for being present. So let me pause my story here to pull in Jeremiah, the scripture text that I, that I read this morning, because it helps, it, it helps open up connections I'd like to draw between my story and how prayer changes us. Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. Active just before enduring the destruction of Israel by King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army, Jeremiah had the unenviable call from God to speak the truth to the people. The hearts of God's people had grown hard, like stone, toward the needs of others. They'd broken a covenant with God that they made at Sinai. In chapter 7, if you go back uh, earlier in Jeremiah, Jeremiah confronts them. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery? Is this starting to sound familiar? Swear falsely, make offerings to other gods? Will you make my house a den of robbers? Will you oppress the alien, the orphan, the widow, and shed innocent blood in this place? You know it's bad when all Jeremiah has to do is list off the Ten Commandments, like just the <laughs> basics, and they're not even doing that. They had lost their way so profoundly they couldn't even honor the basics. Jeremiah predicts exactly what's going to happen. They are so corrupt they'll be destroyed by a powerful enemy, and many are taken to Babylon to live in exile. It's an experience of total devastation as the book of Lamentations, which follows Jeremiah in the Hebrew Scriptures, shows in vivid detail. Here, though, in chapter 31, Jeremiah speaks with a passionate voice of God. In the voice of a loving parent, God declares that there is a deeper bond than the Sinai covenant that has been broken, and that even their wrongdoing, even in their subsequent ex exile, they are not abandoned. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you, God declares through Jeremiah. The text that I read again and again uses all to describe the intended audience of this declaration, the object of God's everlasting love. And it is, in, it is a, especially important, I think, to point out that this is not just a message for the leaders, this is a message for the ordinary people who have been pulled along by the forces of history, the ones who are distraught about what has happened and unsure about their future. These two are a part of the all Jeremiah says, the ordinary farmers, if you caught that in the, in the, in the scriptures, the ordinary shepherds out with their flocks. God will write this everlasting love and mercy on their hearts, transforming their hearts. And perhaps most radically, most freeing, is this promise. I will remember their sin 
no more. You and I know that shame and guilt can be paralyzing. In Brene Brown's brilliant writing about shame, she says as much. Shame is tied to identity, not action. And if one's self-conception is of being wrong, of being bad in some way, it can trap you in a place of brokenness without hope of repair, of renewal, of receiving exactly what God is offering here. I want to satisfy the weary, and all who are faint I will replenish. It is as if God wants us to know, to have it written on our hearts, that we are never defined by the worst things that we've done. We are marked by them, and we can repent of them, but literally because God loves us enough to forget them, we too can open our hearts to a new moment of repair, of renewal, and of hope. And this is where prayer changes our way of thinking. And by thinking, don't imagine that I mean some limited sense of just like from the neck up. <laughs> from the early desert monastics in the second century, Christians have known that thinking is an embodied thing. Our thoughts lead us into actions. Our thoughts become pathways that we walk. And so then do our prayers become pathways that we walk. Guide my feet, Lord, while I run this race is a song we sing at St. Lydia's. Guide my feet, Lord, while I run this race. Guide my feet, Lord, while I run this race. Guide my feet, Lord, while I run this race. For I do not want to run this race in vain. That prayer, to have another chance to live, to love, to be God's presence and mercy and justice in the world, is what is released by the overwhelming gift of God's mercy. That was Jeremiah's gift in his day, to tell the truth of the harms people participated in, the way their hearts had become like stone, and then to free them to become living, beating hearts again. For God's people to pray again in a way that leads to the life God desires for them, the life that is really life. We all have our own connections to histories of harm, from very personal wounds, to participation in global systems of injustice and oppression. My family story is of colonial pioneer settlers that killed Native Americans and stole their land and claimed it was our God-given right to do so. I grew up in the West, in Montana, in Wyoming, a land shaped by a dominant white culture that ignored Native lives and the violence to their communities that lay at the foundation of our supposed success as settlers. In these last years, as we, I've been at St. Lydia's four years, in these last years as we pray at St. Lydia's for the Lenape people and you as well here as you open your service, the first inhabitants of this land, those prayers are guiding my feet, my heart, my being to seek ways of acting that first of all name the awful truth of the United States treatment of indigenous peoples. 
following that naming of truth, following the liberating mercy and love of God in the face of that truth, I seek ways that my prayers change where I walk, change with whom I walk, change to whom I listen. I wonder for you what prayers you are called to pray and where those prayers will guide you. Amen. We turn to communion now, and as we say at our Waffle Church service at St. Lydia's, is this the Lord's table? No. You can say it back to me. Is this four friends' table? No. Is this my table? Oh, I started with the wrong one. This is the Lord's table, which means everyone is welcome. <laughs> I knew I was going to screw up something. And it's in a way like those words from Jeremiah, we get to eat and drink that. Eat and drink that mercy, that love, that forgiveness, that blessing. So now we turn to that and you're welcome to come. Thanks for listening to the Forefront Sermon Podcast. To learn more about Forefront and how we're ushering in the next 500 years of Christianity, visit ForefrontChurch.com.